Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Rob Scott. Rob is the executive director of the Cornell Prison Education Program, otherwise known as CPEP, which he has led since 2013. Under his leadership, CPEP has expanded operations from one to four prisons, and now serves over 200 incarcerated students. Rob has also helped form state and national coalitions for higher education in prison. In 2016, he was recognized as one of 10 White House Champions of Change for his work with CPEP. In college, I co-founded the Prison Reform and Education Project, otherwise known as PREP, and got to know Rob, who eventually served as our faculty advisor. As we discussed, I was also a volunteer teaching assistant with CPEP. Rob was one of the first people who came to mind when I conceived of this podcast, but he's been a little busy being a new father the past few months, so this conversation was a long time coming. We discuss how Rob got started in prison education, how prison education has gone from bootstrap projects done in the shadows to flagship programs supported by major universities, how the era of Pell Grants and prisons was not all it's cracked up to be, how CPEP works, why crime may have declined, the power of language in our self-concept, the experience of teaching in prison, a better definition of crime, the limitations of attempting to change oppressive institutions from the inside, the tenuous state of Pell Grants for incarcerated people, Rob's complicated stance on prison abolition, the small-d democratic origins of incarceration as punishment, and restorative justice and alternatives to incarceration. Rob is an incredibly thoughtful and selfless guy, and his opinions consistently surprise me. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's just start off with uh, what inspired you to spend your career working with incarcerated people? Well, it wasn't actually that direct. What my pathway was in originally getting involved with higher education prison it actually began because i was living in a small town in illinois where the university of illinois is located going to grad school and i was a graduate student in the college of education and what i was doing was getting involved in some activism in the communities the early days in which we had cameras on cell phones and so people would record all sorts of stuff and start putting it on the web. And in this case, um, the black community was beginning to record police stops in their neighborhood because they were concerned about the number and the quality of these police stops. And there were some um, incidents that involved backlash from the police community against the black community saying that they couldn't do this. Some people can go look this up. There's a big debate in Chicago in those years around whether the police could actually make it illegal to record them. And I was a guy from the campus part of town that was um, going to professors on campus and saying, um, would you donate to these um, legal funds to help fund uh, support for some cases where people were looking at um, pushing back and saying, no, you should be able to allow, you know, people should be allowed to record an interaction with uh, police officers. If there's nothing to hide, why not? Um, And they shouldn't be railroaded and um, charged with crimes um, for trying to record a, a conversation with a peace officer anyway so i had this reputation eventually someone said you know what there's a professor who is thinking about bringing college classes inside of prison walls Uh, this obviously as i'm sure this conversation will unfold aligns with the axes of justice um, racial inequality and policing and so people saw me as a candidate for potentially becoming a graduate assistant to this program. And that ended up being the way that I worked through graduate school as I was the assistant to a project. It's called the Education Justice Project at the University of Illinois. 
program still exists. It's actually one of the more wonderful um, college and prison programs in the country, and I'm proud to have been involved with it before I got a job at Cornell. That's very interesting. So yeah, you kind of were recognized for this work in Illinois, and then were brought over to the Cornell Prison Education Program. That's correct. And so what was the process of building out that program like in Illinois? Well, it was kind of an interesting time. It, it, the, the aughts is, I guess, what we call it, the years that ended with zero, 2000 zeros. Um, there wasn't yet a public move by the universities to embrace prison as a space where universities would do, you know, the core of their work, education, research, policy advocacy. So at that stage, it was a little edgy to be talking about this, to be trying to do it. Um, there wasn't support from the departments. Um, there wasn't money for it. And so in those early days, what it looked like was trying to get volunteers, <laughs> basically a long way of saying it. Um, we would ask other graduate students. We would ask um, faculty members to offer a reading group um, or a workshop or even a single guest lecture inside of prison walls. And we would ask the university to allow us to grant credit for these courses, knowing that we were asking a stiff order there because, you know, the narrative and the narrative is still there today. Obviously people in prison have ostensibly, you know, convicted, you know, they're convicted of crimes. They, they hurt someone, something. And so um, why should they be allowed to get college classes or why should they be allowed to get college classes for free? Um, maybe if they pay tuition, probably about half the detractors would be okay with it. Um, but the fact that people in prison make no money and generally are from America's um, poorest communities, they cannot afford tuition. So if universities are going to try to offer an education in prison, it generally has to be free. So basically, we were asking University of Illinois, waive the tuition, allow us to offer some classes in there. And after a year or two, we were doing it. Um, it's really because the faculty, a graduate student, wouldn't have that leverage. Um, but the faculty members that were coming back from the prison were saying, you know, we're having great conversations in there. There are people who are capable, ready, eager. This is part of creating a positive change in the direction of a, a more, you know, pro-social direction for how this prison operates, for how these individuals are going to operate. They're returning to our communities, the same towns that the rest of the University of Illinois is serving, Chicago, you know, Springfield, etc. Um, and the university agreed, even though it was a small number of classes, that's how these things generally got started back then. You'd get a few classes in a prison um, and then you'd look for resources and people that would help you expand it further. And so how is this being financed if it's no tuition? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, the answer is really, there might've been times that we were running on a few hundred dollars. I mean, it was because we had, I had a position because I was a graduate student. I mean, my position means I had an email account. I had a laptop because I needed it for school. Um, I had a few extra hours so I could do this work. Um, a professor has a full-time job so they can volunteer to do a class at night. Um, you, you might find someone from the community who's willing to you know, lead a reading group. Then the problem becomes, okay, can we buy 15 copies of the book? So 15 people can join a reading group. Um, someone has to find the time to go ask the prison to allow um, a volunteer to come in and bring in 15 copies of a book, assemble a group of incarcerated people and read the book and talk about it. Um, so, you know, the basic stuff of education is, is behaviors. And so you don't actually need a tremendous budget to replicate what any school does on a daily basis um a prison already has buildings um the lights go on you know <laughs> everything's already there um so basically we were doing it with no budget whatsoever and then we would start to see parts of the program that if we didn't have some budget we're not going to be sustainable and that's where you start looking for grants 
um, or members of the community uh, that might be able to give you a gift of cash that would allow you to pay for something, um, or some zealous human being that would donate all their time and actually do this stuff. And there are some some of these angels out there that just dedicate their lives to being prison activists. You know, we could name them. They're 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 well known after a while. Yeah. Wow. And so, did you feel like you were walking to uncharted territory here, or were there other models that you were looking to? That's an interesting question. So we're still talking about when the first days of doing college in prison for me, it was just basically back in 2007. In Illinois, I think we thought we were the only people doing it. Mm-hmm. At that point, I don't think we do with any other programs in the state of Illinois that were offering credit-bearing bachelor's level courses. You know, we were doing 300, 400 level courses. There was some doodad they had set up through the legislature where community colleges were offering associate's degrees in Illinois, but and it was a lot of vocational stuff. Um, but we did feel like we were doing something special and that we were really trying to think about not just doing education, but being humanizing in the way that we are entering that space, really trying to counter the culture of uh, sort of degradation and dehumanization and and stigma um, that we were seeing as sort of the status quo that had emerged in America. You build this big prison system and then they just become these failure factories. They're just basically set up to haunt people for the rest of their lives with, with, with criminal records, uh, with the, the trauma that they've, uh, you know, accumulated through having been through the terrible experiences of prison. Um, and we were going in and saying, we want to be able to talk to people on their first name basis. We want to shake hands with them. We want to ask them what they want to read. Um, you know, basic stuff you'd want in any kind of liberal educational space. But in a prison, this was radical. And so, yeah, we thought we were the only ones in Illinois doing it. I'm not sure. You, you know, we might it might turn out someone else. I was, I was saying before our interview here, some people were doing this, you know, in the shadows, so to speak. A lot of people were kind of saying, you know, I don't want anyone to notice I'm doing this because... It was so it was such an anti-crime kind of environment in America that you didn't talk about it. But to our knowledge, we were the the main kind of openly, you know, with a website out there doing this group back there in 2007, 2008. Today, it's a, it's just a very different environment today. A lot of people are boasting that they have college and prison programs. Back then, it was more you hope you hoped a important alumni didn't you know notice and then pull all their donations or something because you helped all the criminals. That's that's that was the narrative that we all had. Yeah, I mean, and I, you actually showed me this map a while back when I was still an undergrad of, I think, uh, college in New York State prisons. And I think in the 90s, it was actually like much more prevalent. And then it dropped off um, in part because Pell Grants were no longer allowed for people in uh, uh, prison. Um, so do, do those old programs look like the new ones in any way? Yeah, it's a different era. Um, you know, this is an interesting political question. So... Um Trying to think, I mean, you know, this, and I don't know how you're going to edit this thing. I mean, you might edit out this comment I'm making right here. Who knows? But um, this almost might be an interesting thing to lead with is the history of this is that, um, you know, secondary education opportunity grants, as they were called in the early 70s, were automatically available to everyone who um, did not have the financial means to pay for tuition to go to college. And so that just happened to include people in prison. If you look at the, you know, you know, 20th century chart of how many people are in prison, that was, you know, there's sort of a trough in the um, 50s and 60s. And then it starts climbing up um, in the 80s and 90s to what we now call mass incarceration. So um, in 1994, there was a bill from the federal government, uh, the crime bill, omnibus crime bill, that removed the eligibility of um people in prison from receiving Pell Grants. It's the only group excluded from receiving Pell Grants in America. Um, and in New York State, they followed the next year, Governor Pataki signed a bill that made it illegal to receive TAP Grants, the TAP, uh, Tuition Assistance Program. 
um, from which you could get another $5,000 worth of uh, financial aid towards tuition. So without those tuition dollars, incarcerated people couldn't pay tuition. Without that, there were no college programs. After a few years, these all folded up. The question you asked, though, is were the programs from that era that got built up basically in the 70s, 80s, and 90s sort of qualitatively different than the ones we have today? Um, I suspect that they are. Um, from what I hear, because the the Pell Grants were part of the program when they were building the prisons. I mean, you got to remember, there was a time where they were built, you know, we can Google the statistics, but every few minutes, a new prison project was getting started somewhere in America over the 1990s. Um, well, they were building classroom space into these prisons with the assumption that it'd be college programs there because they were so much built into the conceptual basis of prison that they got built into the concrete of the buildings. Hmm. Um, now you take all that away and these you basically have a bunch of empty classrooms. I don't know. A lot of them repurposed um, in some states where they've shrunk the prison population and they shrink these things down. They've got all these buildings. They don't have to do with them. Um, but the feeling is that because it was part of the status quo, and I mean, there's still some veteran, you know, anti-prison activists that are out there that'll tell you, you know, you're basically co collaborating with mass incarceration at your college. Because the feeling was this is just parasitic higher ed coming in. A totally vulnerable population is offered a college program because they have financial aid only. Financial aid is not that much money. $5,000 for a Pell Grant is not generally what a lot of colleges need today. So colleges would run crummy programs. They'd pocket their 5K. You know, they'd hire contingent faculty. They'd reuse the same textbooks for 10 years or whatever, not update their technology. Um, and people would get some kind of degree mill or something. And maybe, you know, from the stories I hear, it might be of, of the typing you might hear of, of other dysfunctional programs that exist in correctional environments mm -hmm. where maybe, you know, they, they claim they're producing this product or they're claiming that, you know, they're going to, you know, have a great, you know, sports league for athletics for people that need to keep in shape while they're in prison. But if you really get in there, it's, there's a bunch of kind of corrupt looking prison stuff going on. And so college fell into that pit pitfall as well. Um, sort of trap when you go into prison, you become sort of prisonized. That's that's one of the stories. I think there's also very good stories of programs that were about redemption and change, um, like in like anywhere in higher ed. You know, there's parasitic higher ed outside of prison, <laughs> so it still exists. Uh, but in this era, my feeling is that the aughts and now the I don't know what we call this decade, the twenty teens, um, programs that have started have generally been of a more activist ilk. They've been forged in a narrative of resistance to mass incarceration quite different from saying you're part of the program. Um, and so because of that, there's a little bit of a sense that, yeah, they're not doing it for the money. Um, certainly the folks at Cornell that are involved in our program, the Cornell Prison Education Program, are most exclusively interested in some version of reform or more fundamental change about the way justice is carried out in America. And the, and the college programs, I think of it really, if we were in a more sane environment, would really just be considered the tip of the iceberg. It would just be, of course, when you go to prison, you can get an education. I mean, that's the minimal thing that a sane society would provide um, to a population of people that were, for whatever reason, in such a dire context that they had to actually do something that got them convicted of serious crimes and taken away and segregated from society. You'd want them to come back educated, mentally healthy, prepared to go to work, prepared to rejoin their family to take care of their kids. Um, and college would be part of that. Uh, but, you know, we still exist in this environment where we can't even get to that basic piece where you can just turn on this minimal financial aid that won't even pay for, I don't know, maybe 10% of tuition at a good university. 
Um, and so because of that, the people that are doing it are like, sure, I'll do it for very little money. Sure, I'll do it at night school. I'll drive an hour away from the campus. I'll go into an environment which is actually much more difficult to do the work that we do. And the men and women in America's prisons that find these college programs, I think, also have this feeling like people that are coming in here are resisting what this prison does otherwise. Um, and they feel perhaps more honored that people are coming in to offer them an education, knowing that there's no money in it for the people that are coming to do that education. Um, and I think they, they raise their game a little bit. I mean, like you would in any context, when you feel like society doesn't want you to do something, you know, you got to pick up your game a little bit higher, make sure everything works out. Yeah, no, I, so I think it's now's a good time to cover some of the basics. Um, so you mentioned the Cornell prison education program. Uh, what is that program? How does it differ from what you were doing at Illinois? Sure. Um, well, in a lot of ways, it's similar. I, the idea is, right, I would call it humanizing higher education in prison, um, meaning the idea isn't simply to say, oh, this is some arbitrary spot here. We found a prison where we can just be more Cornell University like like we are when we're you know, at a, a grape vineyard in the Finger Lakes area or we're at the tech campus down in New York City. Um, just more Cornell being exactly the same. Rather, it's kind of a sense that we're going into sort of try to change the environment. Um, we see this as a, a permutation upon the culture of prison in the, in the spaces that we enter into. Um, so, and I think the Illinois program was like that too. The idea was, um, you know, we're actually trying to change the lived reality of people that are in a, in a kind of dire circumstance because we know that they're coming home and they're going to be our neighbors. They're going to be our, they are, they're our brothers or our fathers or, you know, I say usually with male pronouns because we're in these hyper-masculine male prisons, the only prisons that are near Cornell University are male's prisons. Um, but the basic program um, is we offer an associate's degree in four prisons through a collaboration with SUNY Community Colleges. We offer a certificate in the liberal arts through Cornell University, which is sort of an honors program as it's emerged. It's basically an entirely faculty taught Cornell program. Um, and that entails research. So now we have actually installed some computer labs in the prisons um, and have begun building these research databases that emulate what we do on campus. Even though there's no internet in prison, you should still be able to search for original research and answer new questions, um, even though you are behind prison walls. Um, and on campus, the other side of this is where, of course, I met you, Garrison, is mm -hmm. um, we now have several programs on campus that are um, either initiated by students, like the one you created, um, or initiated by the faculty, like the minor in crime, prison, education, and justice, um, which are aimed at providing an academic background for people on campus that want to go into prisons, want to try to shake things up, change things in the way that justice is carried out in America's correctional system. Um, but of course, as you know, like our young, our, you know, an 18 year old joining Cornell and, and, and need to study what, like what we're talking about, the history of corrections in America, the history of the war on drugs. Um, understanding how implicit bias works, understanding how um, policing is not just so simple as walking up to someone and saying, hey, let's not hurt each other. <laughs> just like stopping crime isn't so easy as saying, hey, let's not, let's not hurt each other. You know, I, I think I, we need to always salute in these conversations the fact that people really do suffer from crime. I, and, and New York was ground zero when I was growing up, uh, you know, the Giuliani era and before, Dinkins. Everyone had one of those, what do they call it? They were like, you'd have to put a crowbar on your uh, steering wheel in your car um, because people were stealing your car. You drove into Manhattan, you got your car stolen. Um, you know, you'd have another, there was another version you could put on your trunk. I remember my cousin worked in the city at the time and his trunk would get ripped open. He'd get, he'd get his car stereo ripped out of his car and he'd go to the cops and they'd say, you know, that's, that's New York. That's just what it is. <laughs> this is a, a crime-ridden city. 
Um, so you got to kind of remember that this this wasn't actually just rabid racist nonsense. Um, the Congressional Black Caucus supported everyone supported this war on crime in a kind of way that seems rabid today um, and excessive. But at the time, um, people were stabbed in the streets. People were having their car stereo stolen. Um, I got mugged regularly as a teenager in New Jersey. Wow. And if you had probably walked up to me as a 16-year-old, I probably would have said, I hope someone arrests that dude. <laughs> that sucked, you know? Yeah. Um, that said, now we can see the excesses, particularly in things like nonviolent crime, and we are at least scratching our head about whether there are smarter ways to deal with violent crime and property crime um, than just raw incarceration. Because raw incarceration just seems to amplify the cycle of violence, the cycle of reincarceration and crime. Um, it didn't get us less crime. <laughs> it didn't yeah. get us less incarceration. It got us an increasingly expensive system, increasingly violent system, um, and a bunch of people that are having a hard time ever finding their way back to the workforce. So, yeah, the college programs are always about that. Um, you know, the main difference, I think, from the 1980s era uh, is that it, there's really no one in there anymore it, in what I'm in college and prison. Um, that's just there thinking, well, you know, I'm just, no one's going to notice I'm here and I'm just going to get a bunch of money and give people a junk degree. It's just a harder environment to work like that because we live in the era of surveillance cameras and data. And it just wasn't like that in the eighties. You just wouldn't be able to say, yeah, we just happen to have a 10% graduation rate. We're going to hang out in here and, you know, slurp up Pell Grants from a hundred individuals in this prison every year. Um, you know, eventually people are onto it. That um, there's there's feedback channels built into financial aid the way that we do it now. Yeah, I mean, just kind of a quick aside. Uh, there's this good report. I think the name is David Rudman, uh, looking at the impact of incarceration on crime, and he looked at like all the studies that looked at this and concluded that the net effect is probably zero, or if anything, it increases crime um, because there's like the the deterrent effect of longer sentences or just like sentencing people for crimes in the first place. And he looked at like all these studies that looked at when the uh, sentences went up a little bit and if that actually decreased the things and like just found it to be minimal at best. Um, then there's the incapacitation of people who are, you know, maybe likely to commit more crimes, but they're actually in prison during the years in which they would be most likely to do this. And this probably does have an effect on uh, crime rates that's positive. But then when people get out of prison, they're actually more likely to commit crimes in the future um, because the experience is just like so bad at uh, rehabilitating people, at, at reintegrating them into society. And so what the conclusion is, is like pretty radical, which is like we've just spent hundreds of billions of dollars, destroyed millions of lives for no material gain in, in safety or security. And, you know, some people like uh, there was this terrible Brett Stevens column about the 94 crime bill of saying like Joe Biden should be proud, proud of this bill. Um, and it's just like, well, like this bill happened and then crime went down and it's like not looking at all at like any kind of causal inference. Um, and yeah, like it, we don't know why crime went down exactly. I don't know if you have thoughts on, on that particular question. Uh, not that are short enough to fit into this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean like, so, so like if it's not prison, then it's some other things that are hard to say. And it's just like this huge, enormous tragedy that is, uh, I mean, David Simon called it um, a Holocaust in slow motion, which is very provocative. But if you look at just like the sheer scale of human suffering over, you know, 40 years of 50 years of the war on drugs and, and all the corresponding policies, it's, it's really, really hard to overstate just how, how bad it's been. 
Yeah, you know, there are a bunch of papers that are coming out about this. Again, back to, you know, the era we live in is really just data science. So if you've got data, there's almost no theory anymore. You just look at data and, you know, that'll that'll give you your answer. And you don't need to have a theory anymore. Um, there's a paper recently. It was about the, the idea was that basically the rise of cell phones might, mm. might be what did it. Oh, because you, you no longer needed to, like, actually like use a, a payphone in the public or, or even I, people remember how crime happened in the 90s pagers people had pagers you would actually page someone a number and say call me at this number and then go to that phone wherever it was <laughs> um and you and you would be very reliant upon territorial divisions of a city as a way of conducting any kind of illicit behavior so you know if you're going to actually supply someone with an illegal piece of contraband whatever that thing might be um, you would actually have to go to the places which were where these stores were, where these things were in an era in which you could simply get on a cell phone and say, I don't know, like, let's just go wherever. <laughs> and no one knows we're talking to each other. And I don't have to be in a particular building to use the phone. Um, the hypothesis goes, uh, there's much less need for direct person to person confrontation. Um, and there's frankly a much more sophisticated way in which crime can operate that doesn't require such confrontation with the law. Um, I, the whole thing here too is is it actually crime has gone down or fewer people are being arrested you know this, there's that kind of question as well um certainly you can look at things like murder rates um ex dead people are generally reported um but has drug crime actually gone down i and th those kind of things actually i actually think are, are more slippery i mean there's a you know what is the show on hbo now is about like you know the the delivery service of marijuana through oh new york high maintenance high, there we are yeah so i mean oh it's it, like new york's like quasi-legal right like there are services you just text somebody they go to your apartment and it's like the people are pretty much not at risk but i remember the first time i heard about that in new jersey as a kid growing up in new jersey like you can get you know drugs delivered to you in new york and i was like that's so crazy no way everyone is going to get caught and then i thought to myself, well you know what actually that's kind of sophisticated because then you're not running a drug house yeah i mean what's harder to bust <laughs> you know? yeah some guy with a backpack on a on a bike in midtown i mean that's that's tough and and who knows who looks like a drug dealer in new york city if anyone could be one um but if you've got a building with like pounds and pounds of contraband in it or like tons of weapons and a bunch of people guarding it um you know you end up sending 40 people to jail for that so i don't know i i that's like it's just to say they're pretty wild ideas about um what decreased crime i don't think i mean you go back to tocqueville he was talking about prisons ostensibly are just concentrating the people who know how to do crime the people who think criminally and the people who know how to like brainstorm more clever ways of getting away with this stuff so you're not segregating them from crime you're actually concentrating them so I, I mean, the the question of whether prison was ever really intended to make people less prone to do violent or criminal things has never really been successfully argued to to my ears by any public officials because all you have to do is walk into one of these things, um, and you can see like, okay, folks here, is, you know, this is this is where the most dysfunctional stuff is happening. Like, yeah. just talk to the officer at the front gate a lot of times, and you just realize, oh. You know, you're just in an environment that must be really stressed out here because because the mood, the language, um, you know, the the assumptions about people and trust, and kind of the basic things we rely on to get through our day, are just missing in there. Um, and you live in that for five years or ten years through a longer prison sentence, that's not habituating you how to be into you know a normal, like non-prison kind of environment or non-criminal environment. It's 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 criminogenic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, and you've mentioned it already, one of the best 
uh, cases for CPAP or other, you know, higher education and prison programs is like when you're there, the people there aren't felons or cons or inmates, they're students. And the relationship is not hierarchical, at least not in the same way that they usually are. Like, yes, there's a teacher, there'll be TAs, but at least in the classroom that I was in, it felt like very egalitarian and very much like a peer relationship. Yep. And uh, I feel like that's just really essential to uh, getting out of these like hierarchical frameworks that normally perpetuate in prisons. You know, it's it's just like college on a campus too, is you're in a, a different language environment, different relationship environment. And so, you know, if we're all humans. I mean, so that's the thing is it, like what you were just doing in that sentence there, these words that make people sound very different. It's just a lot, it's a lot like, you know, the assumptions of racial language, of criminal language, um, suggest that we have things that are just fundamentally different about us. Um, but if people are actually, you know, made of the same stuff and we're susceptible to the same, you know, opportunities and pitfalls and things like, you know, if we're spoken to like we're terrible people, we will begin to behave differently. If we've spoken to as people that have potential, that have another chapter of our lives ahead of us, we will behave differently. Um, sometimes a small change in language use will bring about a whole sort of treasure of life that you otherwise will never be able to access. And I certainly feel like that's what we hear from people that are living through incarceration when they start to be spoken to as, as college students, as you put it very well there. You know, I'm a college student. Just carries a completely different, you know, autobiographical, you know, narrative than I'm, in the, I'm a prisoner, I'm a, I'm a con, all those language you were using there, criminal. And I, I can tell you from my own background as a child, knowing people that had real criminal intent. I mean, let's not forget, that's American culture too. Like what we want to see on TV is, it's cool to be a gangster, right? So I mean, that's, and that's, you know, every community has a version of that. Um, so people have criminal intent. In high school, it was cool, the kid that wanted to go do something that was very illegal sometimes. You know, that it was cool to hear that person talk. You'd be like, wow, really? They're going to do that? Um, to get away from that, you need an alternative narrative. I mean, it's, that's just basic, basic human, you know, epistemology. There has to be some alternative story that people can tell themselves at some point. Um, and if you're broke, it's really tough. I mean, that's the other thing is you're talking about um, folks that are coming from very challenging backgrounds. Um, of course, America's prisons, predominantly communities of color. Um, and their dynamic with the law and with the policing structures have gotten to be entirely cynical. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you can imagine people like you and I, these two white guys, you know, wearing, you know, collared shirts coming from a, you know, Ivy League school like Cornell and showing up in a maximum security prison and saying, yeah, let's talk about sociology or political science. What are your thoughts about, you know, <laughs> ecological <laughs> modernization theory? I right. That one. Yeah. Or, or culture, you know, things that don't get talked about. You know, we always talk, they always talk about race and stuff. You know, in college, you get to talk about culture, patterns of behavior. You know, the really positive things that are contributed by human diversity and not just um, stereotyped to our biology. Um, and you see this whole treasure of conversation open up in front of you uh, from folks that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, they'll tell you directly. They, they were told they would never get this opportunity and that they weren't worthy of it. Um, and then, the, you know, like you see the guys that are coming out of our program, a lot are getting out. They're around my age. They're around 40 years old, a lot of them. A lot of them got locked up when they were younger. And, you know, there is something about, I don't want to say age out of crime, because it suggests that crime is this kind of like virus that people have acquired. And then they kind of like, you know, 
like you take the cocktail and then you can kind of live with it, but you're always a criminal, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like it's more like what I had with myself too. I grew up a little bit in my late 20s. There was like a developmental stage I went through where I made commitments in my life that I just wasn't ready to make when I was a teenager or really even in my college years. You know, 18 to 22, was really formative. Um, and you can see the guys in our college and prison programs who are incarcerated starting to make intellectual commitments, social commitments, family commitments that they really, really probably would have had a hard time making um, in whatever distressed situation they might have been in at the age of 17 or whatever started the path that got them incarcerated. Um, and if you don't put something in there that provides people a chance to make these alternative commitments, then back to your idea, you know, what else are they going to be able to commit to? They're going to commit to, well, maybe I found some better way to make a hustle in America and make it through, you know, the rest of this life that I'm going to have in whatever neighborhood I'm headed back to. Um, you know, there's certainly not a lot of people in the, you know, criminal underworld suggesting that a history major might be a pathway into your forties, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, only a university would still argue that that's a good idea, but no, I mean, it's, you know, I, there's a, there's a larger challenge here about what do you use a college education for? But I mean, I think it's the same challenge for us out on the outside world too. um, knowing what you use a liberal education for in 2019 America. Yeah. uh, I just, I remember in my classroom, the, probably the best student in my class uh, had been there since he was 17. And he was 35 at the time. So majority of his life spent in prison. And this is a maximum security prison. He, I think, was involved in a, a murder of some kind. And I did not look up my students as was recommended, but um, mm. other people did. And, you know, word spreads a little bit. And he had, you know, the teardrop tattoo. And it's just like, wow, like this guy is so personable. He's intelligent. He does the readings. And it's just like in another context, like maybe without the tattoo or something, you, you would never have guessed. And, you know, some person listening to this might be like, oh, these naive guys, like they just know that, or they don't realize that they're just getting played by this person who like is in this relationship where it makes sense for them to be nice to you. But in, in an instant, they would like, you know, take advantage of you if they could. And like, and maybe that's the case, but you know, maybe there's like real fundamental change there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you hear that those assumptions all the time. And frankly, you hear it about every community. It's just more acute with people in prison. You will know this, Garrison, because you actually went into a prison. And that's the credibility that people like you and I will carry, that a lot of folks that prefer to talk about folks in prison but not go there will not carry, is that there probably isn't any other group in America that people are more willing to speak for, more willing to make assumptions about who they are, how they think, what their potential is without ever having met a single person in that context than the group that is the incarcerated mass of, you know, 2.3 million people in America. So people have no shame. You know, you've had this conversation or someone's never been to a prison just walks up to you and says, what those people should do is this. What those guys need is this. You know, what will change it is X, Y, Z. And, and you can just tell from the way that they're talking that they've never set foot in that space. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know what it feels like. They don't know the sort of emotional tenor of conversations that are happening in prison when people are talking about what's really going on in their lives as someone that might be 35 and, you know, 17 years through a 25-year sentence or whatever that gentleman might have been. Um, that, that even to call the person a gentleman changes that whole conversation like I just did there. Mm-hmm. Um that if they're treated with respect, they actually sometimes have eloquent views about how the world is working and from their position where they are, not being able to vote, but being able to see all the current events unfolding 
you know, actually have a kind of unique perspective on um, how privileged we are to be able to live in this country and do the things that we do. Uh, yeah, so it's just, I mean, and wh- and why not? Why wouldn't language take that path? Because you've got this group that's the least powerful, the most powerless in America, so we just speak for them. Um, and then the assumption is if someone actually speaks of them as real human beings, they must be completely naive. There, You know, there's a famous book on this. I mean, it, they, you know, excited all over the country. No one ever reads it. I think it's called The, the Games... What is it called? The Games Criminals Play or something like that. That sounds that sounds right. I'll, I'll find it and put it in the show notes. I think it's 1977 or something. First of all, it's t- typo-laden, horribly written book. So <laughs> ever bother to actually read the thing. The cover of it shows someone in a prison uniform, you know, stripes, of course, um, with a sort of marionette uh, strings holding up the puppet that is some, some other poor human that's decided to listen to the mm. cons that were being put upon them by some, some incarcerated person. Um, but the reality is that we're all playing some game. I mean, sorry, but like I just walked down fifth Avenue. I, a couple of people tried to con me just now. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be in prison to be on some kind of hustle where you're trying to get something from someone. Good grief. Corporate America. Everyone's trying to get someone from, you know, <laughs> there's no difference in a lot of ways. If you can channel those into, um, institutions that are, you know, permitted by law, then you're just, you know, competing in America. And if you're in prison and you got caught as a 16-year-old trying to sell something that was contraband, then you're basically permanently tattooed as someone that's never going to be, you know, literally the teardrop thing. Everyone will look at for the rest of their lives, for your life, um, as unredeemable, incorrigible, and manipulative. I mean, you know, look at the political conversations we're having. There's complete manipulation happening at all times. Um, but because certain actors are considered non-criminal, frankly, we could go there. <laughs> like, I'm not <laughs> sure I've ever seen a more criminal government in the United States. But I digress. You know, because that's called non-criminal, that's politicking, that's persuasion, that's public relations. And when it's it's someone who's been given no opportunity um, and was pretty much thrown out of, into the garbage, I think, you know, sometimes teenage years or early 20s or something, they're completely redeemable, can't be trusted. Well, then why not actually just struggle against it mindlessly? I mean, that's another feeling I guess I get sometimes with these conversations is, okay, so we've got a population that ostensibly there was just no hope for there being anything good to be done with them. So why is the only thing that we offer them is like weights and religion? Like, you know, that's all you really have in prison if you don't have education. Um, You know, an exercise yard with, you know, weights that you can lift, you get big muscles um, and religion, which is oftentimes, you know, some some pretty narrowly framed religion. You know, it's really channeled into just blind obedience kind of stuff in a lot of ways you know probably some of my friends in prison not, not like me hearing me say this but um i mean i suspect it's for some kind of survival thing that people make those kind of commitments um it sort of helps them fortify their identity well you could have changing your mind and changing who you are fortify your identity too you know that's you know people that are interested in activism we're obsessed with change rather than conservation we're obsessed with you know uh improving the condition of human beings instead of you know controlling everyone um so it's really a commitment to the control paradigm that you hear come through when people start talking about people that way and really kind of rapidly right and if there's a certain kind of paranoia about people in prison that that really is otherwise only applied to uh you know just the the most extreme prejudicial systems that we have in history yeah yeah i mean i'm reminded of uh this piece in mother jones i think a few years back of this guy who became a private prison guard undercover and then wrote about the experience and 
one of the things that struck me other than like the hard conditions that everyone is kept in is that this is like a you know liberal reporter journalist you know who is well educated and like you know wants the best for the people in, inside and he discusses how like over time he actually like became much more like the other correctional officers he was working with and he would get taken advantage of by people who saw him as like soft or like you know easily manipulated and you know in a, in a prison, the incentives are aligned in such a terrible way that like you're kind of forced to play a role. Um, if you or I were thrown into Auburn um, for a few years, like it'd be very hard for us to to not engage in some kind of like illicit activity to just like stay you know protected and, and safe. And you know you're just forced to play into whatever like status games that exist there. Um, and it's like the opposite of what you want for people who are like coming back into society, right? Yeah, like paranoia and like distrust and uh, manipulation being like something that is ever present in, in the relationships around you. Yeah. No. I, so I think you're talking about Shane Bauer, um, the yes. journalist. Actually, if you go back into his story, he was one of those three journalists that was hiking near the Iranian border. Of oh, Iraq. he was incarcerated himself. Right? He was like, incarcerated in Iran. Yeah. And so he comes back to the United States after whatever had happened to to have him be released. I believe the two other journalists, a, a man and woman, actually got married. And Shane is sort of a the third party to them, and they somehow survived. And I remember hearing about that because I had friends of friends who were at KPFA or in the radio business or something, and so they were kind of like, "Oh gosh, these friends of ours are, you know, incarcerated in Iran." And I was a, a person who was doing stuff with prison, so there were questions about, you know, is there anything universal about this that we can take? And so I take that to actually be his project in coming back here. And I think it might have been in Alabama. It was, it was a deep South yeah, state. Something like that. It was, um, I think it was a geo group run prison. It's actually in a book form too now. The Mother Jones article probably covers about half the content. It's a very long article. Um, but I mean, he really went undercover. I mean, he was like sneaking in cameras, taking names. Um, and I take it that uh, a piece that's of interest here is because he was incarcerated, I think he better understood the subjective and ultimately transactional nature of everything that's going on in prison as an institution that's just got its own little society into it. In a way where if you look back a decade earlier, there was a book called um, New Jack um, by Ted Conover, um, uh, who was just a straight journalist and decided to get a job as a New York correctional officer, ended up posted at Sing Sing, and really by the end of the book is kind of sounding like <laughs> like a correctional officer. Mm. Like he gets it. Like I like he talks about be, coming to work in the morning and seeing this mass of inmates walking towards him using that language of inmates and just being like his heart just sinking. Like I do not want to deal with these people. The job and its structure and the institution and the way that things operate had led him to this place where he hated incarcerated people and was a full-time correctional officer and did not want to be there and was treating people like garbage in one year. And so that was, and that was his little game was I'll do this for one year. I'll quit. And so like the, the book literally ends, it's like new year's Eve and he's like, I'm quitting tomorrow. And apparently like they do something at Sing Sing where they, they burn like a bunch of paper in the, in the, housing unit for like when the ball drops for new years or something he's like literally like choking on smoke like get me the hell out of here um but he he was new to it and thus i suspect especially susceptible shane and his project where they didn't even look up i mean think about the background check they did if they hired this guy as a correctional officer oh yeah right? like oh you were in prison in iran for <laughs> like just google years. that guy's name right it's just like so easy to figure out so like the low threshold of this private prison that he worked for 
in taking him in and not doing any real reconnaissance on who they were hiring here. Um, but keeping those commitments that he knew um, that a person that might've just been in the wrong place at the wrong time as he was when he got arrested in Iran um, could be in there and just watching someone, for instance, just die for lack of healthcare. I mean, those are the real crimes of the prison system that we, we can't, you know, in our legal sense, it's not a crime because they, you know, they put themselves there all the, but in a deeper way, if we, if we really start defining crime as harming a human unjustly, you know, you're just as susceptible to crime when you are in prison as, you know, when you are outside, you know, being harmed by someone who may someday be in prison. And so in a lot of ways, if you think about this, you talk to those people, like the ones you're talking about in prison, so many of them were victims before they were perpetrators. Yeah. At the whole distinction between assailant and assailed really just starts to evaporate when you really start looking at, well, let's figure out what the underlying thing was. What was the pathology that emerged in this person? Well, it emerged from them being victimized and not getting any <laughs> anything in return for the fact that the person that assailed them might have been caught, just like society doesn't get anything per se. Um, when someone that assaults someone at a high school is sent to prison instead of um, into some more mm, thoughtful program of reform by which everyone is healed. I mean, that's that's the harder question is, well, if we're not going to do prison, what are we going to do? Um, but while we've got these prisons, you know, we've drifted a bit. College. That's the thing we can do. You know, that's <laughs> that you can do it right inside the buildings that exist inside the prisons today. And this isn't a sales pitch for prison being good. Um, it's it's a pitch for if you're going to have prisons, if this is the institution that we're using until we have some other system, um, college is an institution that's already set up to set people on the path to an adult life in which you can be a taxpaying, voting, informed person where you solve your problems through reasoning and critical thinking as opposed to violence. Um, or if you've got serious traumas, you know, things like, you know, childhood violence, addiction in the family, um, mental disorder you know these are the things that you see when you're in prison these are the things we study at a bachelor's level in college so you know that's why there's such great interest in it when you go into a prison you say you know let's offer a psychology course the guys are thirsty to hear about what psychology really is because what you hear on the yard in prison is, is stuff people are getting from the same three books that are circulating in that tiny little prison library for the past 20 years so anyway i think it's uh there's a lot to be unpacked in that um the question of what institutions would be appropriate to intervene in America's correctional complex. Um, if you can get past the, yeah, the shouting of naysayers that say those people need X, Y, Z. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, uh, Shane Bowers example, it's like a really good counterpoint to people who say that like you should go inside of institutions and change them from within. And I'm they're willing to make sure we're getting it. Yeah. <laughs> Watch us do the whole show saying Shane Bowers is Shane something else. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. It's just like if you go into an institution expecting to change it, you need to go in with enough. We got it right, Shane Bauer? Yeah. You need to go in with enough um, agency and degrees of freedom to actually make meaningful change. So, you know, maybe in a government agency, it's like being the cabinet secretary is like the only thing that can really do that. Or in a, a prosecutor's office, like being the, the district attorney, not an assistant, assistant district attorney is like the only way to, to really do that. Um, and being a prison guard is not a good way to change the system from within, but being a prison educator actually might be. Yep. Well, you know, I feel like that's a little bit, I, would, I gently push back on that because I feel like the exciting thing about the college and prison 
movement really in the United States is that it's developed a multiplicity of resistances to the status quo in crime and policing and incarceration. And it, and that there's not one leader, you know, I think the tendency in America and, and friends, no one's fault. Well, <laughs> it probably is someone's fault, but I don't know whose fault it is, but it is an obsession of, of over executive powder power and leadership to the point where we get to start thinking about whole eras of change. And we think about three names. Um, it's not how it worked. I, I spent some time really trying to figure out why the sixties seemed to change a lot of things. And in the eighties, there really wasn't a lot. And I, I never came to an answer. It was because MLK was the greatest leader ever, though he was a great man. What I see is Detroit had its own whole complex of resistances. Trenton, New Jersey had a whole set of things going on. One university, Columbia University in New York had a tremendous number of different struggles that were being waged here. Um, there was a thousand struggles in America and it's just much quicker to look to the person that ends up on a stamp and remember that that was what occurred in the 1960s. Um, and the, and the stronger movement for change is always going to come from lots and lots of different activities trying to change lots of different things such that there's so many permutations happening that the system can't respond to them all and stop them all. And that, that's what I think has um, accidentally happened with college and prison. Because of the condition, there's no college aid. There's no money for it. So then it's just basically all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Anyone that can figure out how to do this without a dime of financial aid, go for it. And so you end up with like a hundred different models of how to have college and prison in America and a hundred different narratives. You have abolitionists in there. You have the reformers. You have people that are all about trauma and overcoming trauma. You have people that are all about reentry. You have folks that are about feminism. Um, and, and those programs all exist out there and they're all kind of creating different ripple effects onto their own as the people are paroled out, as people are um, going on to get other jobs at other universities and spreading the different ideas of how to do this work. And if you were to look around and say, well, who's the person who's leading the college and prison movement in the United States? You really wouldn't have a name. It's certainly not me. I know the people that are doing the largest projects in the country and none of them really speak for all of us. I mean, <laughs> put us all at a dinner table together. We don't even agree with each other about how we're doing this. Um, and I think that's to our benefit. Um, and so, and, and then by the same token, the, the leadership model and the executive obsession in America has become so dysfunctional. And think about where we were at as a movement. They're basically holding Pell Grants out now, I should say for our listeners. Um, all the college and prison programs in the country wish they could get Pell Grants so that they could fund their programs. And people going to our classes could pay tuition with a Pell Grant. You know, we'd have a budget. We'd be able to, you know, buy nicer things. Uh, books and pay the teachers. That'd be great. However... The way that the federal government has gone about it is enacted by the Obama administration and taken forward by the Trump administration is with a sort of contingent plan of an experiment uh, to study the issue of college and prison by providing Pell Grants to a limited number of selected by the Secretary of Education schools to go to specific prisons and do this. And now they're expanding it. They did a certain number of schools in 2016 and we're expanding it in 2019. Um, you know, this might be one of the things I have to ask you to edit out, but my sense of this is it's yet another um, work around Congress, executive branch move. So I, sure, I liked it when Obama did it. Now I'm questioning a little bit under Trump. Um, but the idea originally was let's do this experiment, show that college and prison works, and then legislatively restore Pell Grants. But what it's turned into, I feel, or I fear, 
is, um, well, we just have this sort of experiment running in the Department of Ed. That's how you get your Pell Grants. The Secretary of Education picks you. So another executive is picking you. It's kind of like having an unconfirmed Secretary of State for like whatever it was, nine months this year or something. Something crazy like that. So the country basically goes with unconfirmed, you know, what do you call it? Acting Secretary of this, acting Chief of Staff. Um, basically signaling to all of us, we don't really have a congressional system anymore. We have acting so-and-so and executive orders and uh, experiments. And, you know, the executive can authorize funds for an experiment. So we have Pell Grants in prison because of an experiment, which basically also means it can be taken away at any minute, not through congressional action, but through executive action. Basically an executive order, and we get rid of the Pell Grants tomorrow. And I could name the programs, North Country Community College uh, in north part of New York State, basically serves three prisons entirely on Pell Grants through this experiment can be taken away tomorrow. They don't have any backup. There's no backup. So you just take away everyone's college away. Um, and that's kind of how this executive likes to work too. It's I'm the decider. <laughs> it's just basically me. Well, it yeah. really matters if I want to do this or not. Um, so I, so anyway, this is just a, uh, a bit of turned into a bit of a rant, but I guess the, <laughs> I, I, I push back on the leadership will save us kind of narrative because I feel like, what I really would like to see is lots and lots of different things being tried. We've already tried. Crime occurs. What's the one answer? And it's been incarceration. What I'd like to see is, okay, if someone's really hurt, people in my family have been hurt from crime. I want something to happen. Mm -hmm. I, incarceration doesn't satisfy me. I want something else to happen. Um, I've got lots of answers for that. At least one of them is going to involve some kind of segregation someone's really hurting people they, maybe there needs to be some segregation from the people they're hurting okay if that's not called incarceration i don't know what it is so i, I have a hard time being a hard abolitionist because of that you take a person away from the situation where they're hurting people okay well what happens then that's where we could have a flourishing of alternative ideas about this um and it's a really prickly spot because you're this terrible p power dynamic you're basically society takes custodian ship of a human being and decides what happens with them you know liberal college is the idea that as an elective activity you could choose to go and try to enhance your mind you could choose what you study you could choose your courses you can choose your research questions your thesis question whatever um that to me seems more consistent with a democratic society <laughs> that's trying to figure out how to reintegrate those parts of society that were so harmed and harming that we had to say, take, take time out from the community. Um, and so that's why for me, college might be a good nest for finding that diversity of ways of responding to mass incarceration instead of some other institution we haven't named yet. Yeah. So I was going to ask about prison abolition and we've been dancing around it. So you don't identify as a hard abolitionist because you think segregation is sometimes necessary. Yeah, you know what? I got a funny answer for you here. Trump has made me more against abolitionism than I was before. <laughs> you know why? Because I don't want him in society. Yeah. You know, I this again might have to be edited out of your podcast. Am I allowed to say this? Am I going to get You're, put in jail for saying this? No, no. Like well, I think that you know when we, we he, can't speak for that. Look, he led the you know locker up chant. What are they? What is someone saying when they say that? They're saying someone is so dangerous that they shouldn't be in the community anymore. And I, and I go back to this. When I was in high school and I saw people beginning to, you know, willfully express criminal intent, you know, and half the time we're quoting lyrics from songs we like, by the way, but, you know, that is part of America. People are out there willfully expressing criminal intent. You know, and frankly, I think our president willfully expresses criminal intent. 
is the correct thing that he should remain free and allowed to pursue that? <laughs> That's for me the abolitionist question. Someone who's not the person who we think is accidentally there due to circumstance. Because for those, it's, I'm much more comfortable saying, yeah, maybe incarceration is never the right answer for someone who's helplessly delivered to a situation where they're doing something that's on the wrong side of the law. But when someone's out there saying, I intend to harm someone, I shall do something harmful to a person who does not deserve harm done to them. I see, I can, we can populate that with examples, but to keep it abstract, what then? <laughs> if not segregating them from the community where they intend to do harm, then what are we going to do? Someone's stockpiling weapons. You know, this happened in Cornell recently. Yeah. They took the person away. You know, they had a, a ton of big weapons. You know, what? well, what the heck? They're right next to campus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not going to take them away? So, okay. Is it? But then people say, oh, maybe it wouldn't be prison. It would be something else. Okay, I'm open to that conversation. I mean, I think that the movement for that should be named after that alternative. And I'm not sure that abolition is the right metaphor. But... Before the prison system was that, what was it used for? It was used for taking away people that created sexual violence against children, for those who committed homicide. And and I think those functions should persist. Um, and I, I don't mean to stigmatize everyone in prison is a sex event. They're not. <laughs> um, and I don't know what causes those types of things to happen in human society. I think every human society has had sexual crimes carried out against children, or what we should call crime. Um, I do not think those members of the community should be allowed to be around. If you just killed someone, you shouldn't be free the next day. It just doesn't seem right to me. Um, at least until we're sure that no one else is going to get hurt. Mm. And that something's being done about justice for the people that knew the person who was killed. Um, and I, and if it's something that looks other than prison, I'm very open to that. Um, but to me, so long as we're talking about segregating someone against their will away from society, probably inside a building because it's pretty hard to do it just saying it's out here, then it's probably going to be called by anyone who knows the term to mean what it currently means, a prison or an incarceration facility or something like that. So if you look at Northern Europe, you can see things that look nothing like what we consider a prison to look like. And even people who commit homicide are there. And that seems to me like a direction that would be like, oh, we should be calling this something else now, like the Rehabilitative Pathways Program. Okay, I'd be a rehabilitative pathwaysist instead of an abolitionist in that case. <laughs> but I, but I guess I would still say you've you've still done the fundamental prison thing that was there um, two hundred years ago when the prison concept was created, which is you say, no, you're being taken away from the community whether you like it or not. Uh, even a restraining order, in a certain sense, is the beginning of incarceration for me. Um, it, like the way the ankle bracelets are, in a certain way, a, a mobile form of incarceration. Um, it's, it's saying we're removing the freedom of movement and certain other liberties, including information liberties, um, communication liberties. You don't get to talk to and be with people that you otherwise want to be with. Um, you know, sometimes that's because there's concern about additional harm. That's to me when it's illegitimate. The rest of it, I think, yeah, there's a complete excess. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I'd hazard some 80 or 90% of incarceration in this society might be excessive, at least too long sentences, too severe in what the experience is when you're incarcerated. And I'd like to see that all kind of sculpted away, like a big piece of marble, you know, knock away at it until you get away all the pieces that are not necessary to be there. But I grew up in America, man. There are people that want to hurt people in this country. <laughs> and I, that's a harder question for me to say, how are we not going to have something that it exists as some form of 
we want to put this person in a building and saying, you can't come back out here. You're hurting people. You know, Martin Screlly. What was that guy? Was that guy the, the guy, the pharma bro or whatever? Yeah, pharma bro. I mean, look, we love talking about it. We put it on the news every night. This guy's out there trying to like basically kill people by jacking up their med prices. Um, or the opioid crisis. Now we're actually finally talking about, you know. The Sackler family. The Sackler family. Okay. Well, you can take a billion dollars from them and they're still going to like own an island. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not really that bad of a penalty if they bought that with the drug money they got, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, all, this is why, you know, read the Foucault's book. He gets back to it. The reason we discipline haven't... Discipline and punish? Yeah, Discipline and Punish, uh, 1977, Michel Foucault, the English translation. I mean, it's first section or so. He says, the reason we got stuck on prison is because in a society, particularly one that's obsessed with wealth, you know that taking away even millions of dollars from a very wealthy person really isn't much of a deterrent or from a wealthy corporation. The one thing you can take from a poor person and a rich person in equal measure and have for both of them suffer equally is the time of their life. You can take away six years from Garrison and you can take six years away from a poor person who didn't have any opportunities and they're both going to be six years older and none the wiser because they've been removed from society. They've had everything taken away from them. And so prison becomes this kind of equalizing. It's actually, that's why it's originally thought of as democratic. Mm. It's because like, okay, like if you say, oh, you murdered someone, it's a million dollars per person. Well, a rich person says, okay, well then I get, you know, if I've got 10 million, I can, you know, murder nine. Who are my least favorite people? (laughs) I'm still a millionaire. I'm I'm good. (laughs) And a poor person, well, what do you do? Well, then you have to start taking away their body or something like that. I don't know. There's nothing left to give. Um, But if you take away time equally, murder is 20 years no matter who you are, um, then this becomes something where people see it as, uh, you know, something they avoid even if they're rich, even if they're powerful. Because what if they get caught? Um, anyway, I've, I've kind of uh, blabbered on into the wrong topic here. but No, no, I mean, this is very interesting. And uh, I, the idea of, like, doing away with any kind of compulsory action with the threat of the use of force from the government or actual use of force from the government seems like, very very far away um because there are there are going to be people that imminently wish to harm others and they have to be prevented from doing so if we want to live in a society um and i'm somebody who i do think that the um government monopoly on use of force has been a a good uh trend in history and responsible for like us being able to have this conversation and like just have anything resembling modern civilization um but obviously it goes way too far where you know you have police that are basically immune to uh meaningful oversight and prosecutors who are literally immune <laughs> to uh any kind of um culpability for the bad decisions that they make um and so you have to balance it right like right now the pendulum is far too far in the direction of like government state power being exercised against you know minorities and and poor communities and state power is still going to exist and if it actually were going after the uh the really like the people doing the most harm at the top end of the totem pole of society then um it would be a far different conversation but as we know the rich person the poor person are not going to have equal likelihood of going to prison for the same crimes and you know one or two people went to prison for the financial crisis despite it being massive cases of fraud and and other crimes that would be uh prosecuted if it were done by black people in you know inner city um and yeah could i interject there yeah there yeah. was a quote this week I, I think neil gorsuch was on in the press somewhere and he was saying this thing about oh you don't want justices running the government and that was what got the headline but if you read what he was talking about 
one of the things he talks about is how great our courts function. <laughs> and I, you know, while we're talking about abolitionists, sure, I'm not a straight abolitionist in the sense of 100% of segregating harmful people from the community is bad. I don't think that's where I would go. However, there's a lot of what goes on in America's courts right now that I would abolish. I mean, I just want to say that we actually don't have a trial system for a lot of... No, 97% you know, of cases end in a plea bargain. Yeah, point. criminal courts are not really running cases anymore. And actually, they're punitive against people that have the audacity to go to trial. Um, and such to the extent that unless you get a really expensive lawyer, you're not going to really even get a chance of getting out of there. And so I think the quote is, I forget, it might be a Brian Stevenson quote or something, that a poor person um, who is not guilty but has no lawyer because they're poor um, is arguably going to get a worse sentence as a not guilty person than a guilty person who has a lot of money who has a lawyer. I'm kind of butchering the paraphrase here, but um, it's it's eminently true what's the story that we you every week we have one of these felicity hoffman i don't even know who this person is you know basically bribes the kids way into college and is getting some 14 days and you know what she's out there the headline is she's got the specific prison she wants to go to picked oh out my it's, goodness. it's one in california and i kind of want to say well you know what she's showing that it's actually legit to bribe your way into the institution of choices yeah, yeah. she's doing it but if she got only, into uh, her daughter's institution she got into her right prison institution. but but you can do it in the courts mm -hmm. You can't do it in college. In college, that would still be considered corrupt. But if in courts, you just say, you know, you've got the better lawyer. You basically tie things up. You ask for a continuation. And you eventually get to the, get to the prison of your choice. And there was and a I, homeless person who spent five years in prison for saying that her son or daughter was in, like, a different school district so she could go to that school. Right. Like, and these fraud are, about, like, where you lived. Precisely. So. It's exactly. I see. You always have these examples in America. A poor person with no lawyer did something that would be considered really just kind of a petty... Like, right, like like putting the address wrong on, like, registering your kid for public school. Or it's the most sympathetic crime in the world. It's like, you want oh to get ahead. Oh, my God, right. And you're just thinking, how, the, how awful this Here's this person who realizes the crummy quality of public school that their daughter or son is going to go to, and they try to get them into a better one, and they incarcerate the parent for five years? That's more than a college education would take to do. I mean, the and so I guess I could, so here's a place I'd actually be an abolitionist. I don't think we should be incarcerating any parents for trying to get their kids into a better school. <laughs> even the ones doing the bribes, even Felicity have I actually don't think those 14 days do anything. <laughs> I think yeah. that's a really petty and stupid use of prison. It's that what I'm focused on when I say I'm not an abolitionist is people that killed someone, but there's no joy in my life by hearing that Felicity Huffman is 14 days in prison. That's all bloody nothing. And, and even less than the five years for this other person. It's, it's, it's a stupid message that we're sending ourselves as society to think that incarcerating parents for trying to put their kids in a better school you know what we should do we should set up the felicity huffman justice scholarship fund and that's where we should go for the wealth right this is what wealth is for take our wealth away and make scholarship funds so that lots of those people that were excluded so her kids could get into college get a free college make college free that would be a great way to respond to people trying to get their kid into a school and, and resorting to a technically criminal act to try to get their kids into a better school is make it easier for people to get to a good school if they can get, you know, who's not deserving of a good education? <laughs> yeah, and so this is like sounding like a restorative justice, right? Where Henry Kissinger is responsible for, I don't know, millions dead in Southeast Asia. And instead of locking him up in a prison in, in The Hague or something, you actually have him work with the 
orphan children uh, or people being blown up by landmines dropped by you know the United Did States. Did someone suggest doing that? Uh, this was uh, Chloe Coburn <laughs> on uh, the first episode of the show. Oh, that's great. Who also works on prison issues. Now, it doesn't seem very fair to the orphans, but uh, to spend time with Henry Kissinger. <laughs> You're stuck with Kissinger. They did nothing wrong, but... Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with Kissinger for a minute. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> But yeah, but no, I mean, that's exactly right. Is So you look at the nature of an actual crowd. Someone stole something, right? Okay, you know, the old days it was, you know, bread or something. Today it's probably, you know, you try to steal something it's of, of value so you can trade it so that you can make, make, make um, purchase the necessities of life. Well, you know, another way to go about this is to start thinking about, well, what if we directly conscribe people into the activities that produce the means of subsistence? Now, I want to say this. It'd be a great person to think about for an additional person on this um, show is in... Um, Rikers Island, there are some doctors that had access to medical data and did a really interesting study on the, I think they call them the frequent flyers, people that are basically in and out of jail all the mm. time. And they came down to a number, I'm, I'm not going to quote it right, but it was something in a few hundred um, that were you know, responsible for dozens and dozens of incarcerations per year. And so not only do you have to start thinking about like, well, it's just how petty these crimes must have been to get reincarcerated and then released that many times. But think about how much money you're tying up in all the courts and all the intake and outtake and all the parole officers, just the policing itself, the raw time it's taking of the non-criminal actors involved in all this stuff. And what are they doing? They're jumping turnstiles. They're doing things they're not doing. And so what they did was they started to study just that population, that limited number of people that are just jamming up the works and getting incarcerated dozens of times a year. Um, and my sense I'm summarizing and paraphrasing yet again, the study is that you're talking about mentally ill folks, um, almost entirely substance, um, substance abuse challenged folks, um, and all in housing precarity. So, and guess what? Walk around midtown Manhattan. You're going to see some of these folks. They could be in jail tomorrow. They could be in times squares, you know, subway station the next night. Um, and so very radical proposition, I believe they've begun to offer them housing. Mm. And, 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 so, and so you think about it, what's going on in the life of a person who decides to do something that will get them incarcerated in the middle of January when they're living on the streets of New York, it could just be to be warm that night, right? Yeah. Or to get cold medicine. And you know that you're not going to get incarcerated for long and you know how to survive that in the same way that we know this in the old days, a bit in the insane asylum was a way to get through a certain part of a year for a person that otherwise prefers to walk Central Park. Mm. Um, so prison has become the place where all these other ways of precarious life um, and all these other dilemmas that are not technically criminal, but are dysfunctional, like, like mental illness, end up getting tucked. And so the city responds by saying, I believe this would be really good to have the speaker himself talk about it. Um, you're being provided with an apartment in New York City and with a social worker who's going to help you figure out how to navigate this. You need to buy your own groceries now. You know, the basic stuff of this living a regular life at cost less than incarcerating the person a dozen times at Rikers. You, you could do the math. It's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars to incarcerate a person 12 times. And some of these were running numbers, 40, 50, 60 incarcerations. And so, yeah, it's actually better for the taxpayer <laughs> to purchase a building and give a person a free apartment for the rest of the year than it is to allow them to continue to be reincarcerated. The next time you pick them up, put them in their apartment, <laughs> stock their kitchen, <laughs> turn the heat on, you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> offer that... them a conversation if they're having a mental breakdown. Those are much cheaper interventions than police activity. It just turns out to be a much better way to do it. And so that's a place where a total abolitionist 
I'm totally cool with abolishing prison for that kind of social pattern of behavior that's leading a person back onto the streets into quote unquote crime. I say quotes because yes, technically jumping a turnstile is not legal, but then back into a jail where, you know, people with very high salaries have to be surrounding this person all day and night. That, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've just tried to solve all our social problems with incarceration and in lieu of mental health treatment or uh, addiction treatment or I don't know, just housing for, for people. And, and there's nothing built into jail. There's nothing, certainly as we know, it's nothing built into Rikers Island that is going to break those types of cycles. Mm-hmm. I, I, or if it is, it's failing for those individuals. So you might as well try something else. And that's, I guess what I kind of want to say um, when I say this thing about multiplicity is sometimes a situation gets so dire in this case, stripping all the programs out of prisons while building so many prisons in America, that colleges go in and offer college programs. Um, or in this case with the repeat offenders in, in the city jail, it's very large, um, that people finally just start looking at it and saying, let's just start trying other things and see what sticks. I don't know if a, an apartment is going to stick. In America, I don't know. I know that in, in Germany, you're entitled to a house, uh, well, not housing, housing, maybe not a house, but um, a roof over your head. And that's a way that some societies have tried to address the problem that some people will try to live in a homeless way, not by necessarily desire, but by dint of the patterns of behaviors that they've come to adopt as adults. Um, I don't know if this will work in America, but I think it's really exciting when you see one city try something and another city try something else and less of the sort of bandwagon, silver bullet, you know, once we do this, it's all done. And that's that's probably the weakest part of the college and prison movement in America is when you hear people start to say things like, when we do this, there's zero recidivism. Because that, now you're just saying, oh, so if you put college in prison, 100% crime reduction. <laughs> I don't think so. And it's not 100% of people in prison even want to go to college. You go into one of these places, you might have 10% of the prison want to go to college. A lot of folks, in, about half in New York don't have a GED. It's not 100% applicable and half the people don't even have a GED. You can't go to college. Not yet. Um, so there's no silver bullet. It has to be lots and lots of interventions. There have to be a lot of interventions on the parole side, on the reentry side. Um it's got to be crazy shocking to go to New York City after being in jail for 20 years, no matter what area you're living in. Um, you're you're going to experience some kind of trauma. You're going to have some kind of ripple effect of all that time away, um, the bright lights in the city. But, you know, that's just call for, you know, more creativity. And what I think that the college programs, what's interesting about this era, since they're volunteer-based, well, you go back to when I was at Illinois here at Cornell, um, you end up with 100 volunteers and next year, you know, some 25 melt away, another 25 fill the spots. I mean, this is what colleges are. People graduate and they leave like Garrison, you leave Cornell. Um, so someone else ends up being the volunteer and you end up with yet another person who's out there who's actually seen the inside of a prison, who's actually thinking about this, who might start a podcast, who might start a nonprofit, who might then go and work at Rikers Island and start thinking about medical data as a way of intervening in these patterns. Um, and this... Um, great diversity of challenges to the way that things are calcifying as a status quo around mass incarceration is what I think will eventually make it crumble. Not some one giant crack down the middle where everyone says, that's it, we've abolished it and it's done. It just seems to me cartoonish and and actually inconsistent with what American history has taught us. Hmm. I'm reminded of, uh, I think, the title of this book about liberalism and it's like a thousand small sanities. And it's kind of what you're describing, right? Like we need to try a lot of things and it took a long time for mass incarceration to come to come to be. It's going to take a very long time to, to undo it as well. Yeah. 
It's just exacerbated by our political culture too. Because everything has to be a solution and a soundbite that you can get into this much time, and that's it. Yeah. And it's right, and it's this, and it's this. You know, three adjectives, and you know, you're done. And I just just doesn't seem like this to me because when you start doing gratuitous incarceration, incarcerating people that shouldn't be, you know, parents that wanted to help their kid, you know, <laughs> um, now you just ruin lives. So lives are really complex. You know, <laughs> you're going to ruin five years of a person's life and have a silver bullet for that. There are a few times where I've been harmed by people in ways where I could respond that could lead to them being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And I've never chosen that path um, because it's just not going to make my life better. And it's certainly not going to make their life better. And it's just like, I know it's crazy. Like it would take a lot for me to really turn to that. Um, just knowing what I know about the system and how bad it is for individuals involved. You know, I have one story like this. It's a funny thing you bring up there. Like, cause what you're kind of getting into is the free will of a, of a crime victim in choosing to charge. I have a friend um, from Illinois who was at home. He's a single father with two daughters and someone had broken into his house during the day, hid under the bed. And then at night jumped out and, and robbed the family at the house. And it was a small town. He could recognize the person. And um, eventually the guy was arrested and he actually wanted to do an intervention at the county jail and avoid a court trial that would lead to an incarceration. He, he naively thought that people go to prison because they're put on trial mm. and there's a jury, and, you know, <laughs> some kind of thing from the fifties. It just doesn't have anywhere. Um, but so he went to the jail and insisted to the sheriff, I should be able to talk to this person and went to the cell. And I remember asking him about this. It was really interesting. It was earlier days of my kind of, you know, intellectual curiosity about alternative responses to crime. And he was just so disappointed. The person, as it turns out, was not at a point in his life where he was really ready for a conversation with a victim about, you know, I won't charge you if you commit to like some other path. But, you know, and, you know, you won't be surprised to hear this is a white friend of mine, um, a person of color who is the assailant. And it must have come across as the most condescending, stupid thing. Like, oh, you're going to, yeah, oh, I'm going to promise to you that I, everything's going to be okay now. I, I, I snuck into your house and hid under your bed and jumped out with a weapon and threatened you and your daughters. You think of where I'm at right now is I'm ready to like make a peaceful world. It just seems crazy. Yeah. I, I, I think proto-restorative justice is kind of what it sounds like actually. Yeah. I, I, but I, I think it, it's logical that we get really excited about, um, a story where we hear criminal justice working, particularly if there's a whole community leading the whole thing. Um, but when we take it down to the person by person struggle that really is manifest in the capitalist economy that we live in um, and the, and the sort of, you know, evisceration of social services and, you know, the public sphere um, individuals in the moment in which they're carrying out a crime that could lead to someone being very badly harmed are at a, at a fairly desperate stage in their life typically. Um, or there's something really intense going on to them. I mean, when I was the closest to it, it was because I was a teenager and I'd seen people around me die um, unfairly and I had become traumatized. And so I was starting to make very bad decisions that were going to affect me if I didn't um, get off that path. People that stay on it, once they've really hurt someone and they've gone through that threshold and they've done it several times, it's not an easy moment to just come in with a kind of simple solution about, you know, we're going to have a conversation and then we're going to go through a series of steps and you're going to apologize. Typically people go to some other country and say, you know, some traditional society over here, this is what it, how it would happen. There's an indigenous culture out there and they would make the person apologize. But that, in cell phone riven, you know, 2019, I don't know. 
I, I just kind of, I kind of feel like the things I'm describing that are more on the scale of a city that are on the scale of large institutions, um, are a more likely pathway to the alternatives to prison that we really want to find. Um, than some kind of amping up of the scale of community intervention. I mean, just look at the number of arrests that happen in a given day. I mean, the number of people that I've heard references owning guns this year alone because of just what it is. And just, you know, tell me all those folks are ready to have a conversation, you know, <laughs> some kind of holding hands type thing with their community about how they really love everyone. We're in the United States where people are openly expressing hate towards each other. I mean, that's just, I, I, that's why I say that Trump era has made me more more sure that I, I don't think that the removal of people from the community is always wrong um, because you've got hate groups recruiting in my town. <laughs> so like, okay, you know what? I don't want you here. I, I, sorry, I, I come down to that. I mean, the assumption is if we do abolition, it's only going to be abolishing unfairly taken away from the community. But I mean, what about when people actually want to harm you? We can't, we can't say no, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So anyway, I maybe you have to edit out some of this stuff, but we've gone, we've gone on long enough. You'll have some enough material. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess I just want to wrap on um, what you would ask like any listeners who are interested in, in this to do. If they're at Cornell, they can obviously join uh, the Cornell Prison Education Program um, as a teaching assistant. Um, but for somebody just out in the world who's interested in helping out or, or learning more. Yeah. I guess my takeaway message um this whole nexus of prison and education that we've been conversating about is that I think it is possible to really necessary to radically reimagine what happens when there's crime in America and a community and a house and a family. And that education provides this pathway by which you have this multiplicity of other things coming out of it. And that prison seems to create kind of a funnel through which you really are getting a lot of the same kind of, outcomes. Um, lots of people go into prison, very small number of very similar outcomes happening again and again and again. Um, you know, you know, you don't get to choose your major, uh, what you want to concentrate on when you go to prison. College is explicitly about increasing variety of distinguishing pathways of where a person can go. And so for me, that's the pathway to exploring how we could end up with something that really doesn't look anything like what we think of as prison today. And that's what I really think would be the alternative and the abolition of prison. It would be a system that looks radically different. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even want to use the same word anymore. Um, it wouldn't just be, oh, it's obviously prison. You just put the word correction on it. That's how it feels right now. There's bars. There's you know jumpsuits. It's prison. Okay, it says correctional institution. But you could imagine a society. There are societies in which something that doesn't look anything like this is there, and it would actually be kind of silly. And if we we go to Denmark and we say, do you really call this prison anymore? You know, maybe they've abolished prison. They've got something that is actually segre you know, segregating a, you know, someone who's harmful from this community. But it doesn't look like prison. Um, and I think that college is a way to get there because it's, it's suggesting that having more information, having more knowledge, having more skills, um, expanding the human repertoire would be the way to find an alternative. Um, not looking for a single thing like shut it down, uh, which to me just doesn't have a sufficient variety to match the complexity of the humans that are in that system. So yeah, I say if you're in a college or if you're somewhere near a prison, well, if anywhere in America, you're near a prison, um, get involved in some kind of volunteer program that has either a creative or intellectual project in it. If you're in a college, try to make it a credit bearing college program because 
That's how society is going to recognize it is if there's a degree or at least college credit attached to the work in there um, and try to stick with people as they get past that degree and answer that hard question we've all had to face. What do I do now that I've got a college degree? <laughs> um, at minimum, uh, you should be able to a- amplify that into opportunities that weren't there before you had it. Um, some kind of balancing effect against the negative resume that is a criminal record to have a college record. Um, but so, yeah, I, you know, my, my closing message would get be get involved in education uh, in these communities uh, that are currently being incarcerated. Yeah. I mean, I found the experience of just doing one semester of uh, TA in, in prison to be uh, extremely rewarding and uh, just eye-opening. And it's like something I already cared about, but I think it really solidified it as a topic that I'm interested in throughout the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, good. I think that actually, if anything, we see more of it in the short term than less. I, I fear that we see a bifurcation of the field into sort of a red state and blue state way of doing it. Um, but I think that the programs that really are creative are really coming up with things that might actually find other alternatives beyond education itself into what we could do about mass incarceration in America. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Thank you. It's been my privilege, Garrison. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.